friends. This is the great Brian Last, and I am joined by Mike Mills of the Booking the Territory podcast, and I'm very happy to welcome everyone to the very first edition of Arcadian Vanguard's Mid-South Wrestling Television Review Show. And Mike, this is going to be a fun exploration of wrestling history as we go week by week through Mid-South Wrestling Television starting in December of 1981. It's going to be fun, man. I told you this when we had mentioned it on the 605 a while back. We have two different perspectives on Mid-South. I have it as a six-year-old kid, and I think you have it as a maybe 11- or 12-year-old. So uh, that may not seem like a lot of years and human years, but I think that makes a big difference. And I think the perspectives and the fact that also your historical knowledge on you know various territories and in mine, just looking back at Mid-South from – where I watched it back then to now rewatching it. I think it's going to be a lot of fun. I think the fans and listeners will have a good time with us. And I'm going to enjoy this ride because this is the territory that's near and dear to my heart. Yeah. You know, let me just make a couple of little corrections there. I was actually a little bit older when I first saw mid South wrestling. I think I was 14 when I first saw it. And you know, what excites me about this is we're going to go over week by week what was happening on TV as well as in the territory in general. And at times maybe the overall wrestling world, but when it comes to the perspectives that I have and that you have, what makes it interesting is I went into it as a teenager hearing about how Mid-South was the best wrestling television show of the 80s and falling in love with it and really getting to know it, but seeing it from that perspective of after the fact. With you, you grew up in New Orleans. I could tell you what I think people thought in New Orleans when something happened with the dog. You could actually tell me what it was like in New Orleans when that same thing happened. Yeah, and that's what's going to be fun with it. Now, you you were – so what year did you first – I know your age. What year did you first discover Mid-South? And you start getting the tapes and were able to look at it. 1984 was the year I first saw Mid-South. Now, I saw two episodes of the UWF a couple years earlier. It was the weirdest thing ever. We had a show in New York called IWCCW, International World Class Championship Wrestling, one of the very worst wrestling programs to ever air anywhere in the entire world. And you never knew what you were going to get, so you always tuned in. Very often, it was the same show you saw the week before. Like, the exact same show. I'm fairly confident that Tony Atlas <laughs> versus Vic Steamboat may be the most watched match in wrestling history next to Flair versus Kerry at Texas Stadium, just because it aired week after week after week on this program. And you'd get to see these, like, angles that went nowhere, like the Honky Tonk Man and Rick Rude arguing over who's the greatest intercontinental champion of all time. Not wrestling, not fighting, arguing, and then they ask the fans to submit their votes over who's the best title holder of a title that doesn't exist in this company but exists somewhere else that will never acknowledge them. It was just the weirdest thing. So you never knew what you were going to get, and every now and then there would be like some Memphis or some Puerto Rico clip in the show. But for two weeks in a row, at the end of 92, two episodes of UWF aired. From, I believe, the end of 86, the era when you had Eli the Eliminator and Savannah Jack, and you still had Jim Ross and Michael Hayes, <laughs> and you had Jim Duggan, and it blew me away, because I knew all of these guys. I'd seen Jim Ross on TV each and every week. I'd seen Ted DiBiase as the Million Dollar Man for years, and Jim Duggan, and the Freebirds, and all of these guys, and it wasn't that far away. 87, 86 wasn't that far away from 92. So everyone kind of looked the same. Jim Ross looked the same in the end of 92 than he did in the end of 86. So it looked really fresh and really current and Missy and Eddie and Sting and Steiner. And I loved it. And ever since then, I was like, okay, so there's something I really don't know too much about. Cause I was 12 at the time. 
and that's Mid-South Wrestling. That's whatever is happening down there. And again, it aired in 92 when Bill Watts was in WCW, and it was Bill Watts Presents UWF. And in WCW, you wanted to like Bill Watts, but he, he... he painted himself as a heel without even trying to or intentionally wanting to be the heel <laughs> because I'm banning yeah. everything off the top rope. Wait, wait a minute. That's like one of the very few things that I'm excited about right now. You yeah. know? And then it was all these different rule changes, but then you watch that and you're like, wow, this is amazing. This looks so cool. This feels so cool. The matches are good. There's heat. And then I hadn't seen it again. And then I think the first Mid-South, Mid-South I'd ever seen when I said, it's weird to say it like that, but. I think it may have been when I was 14 and I got my hands on, and I may have been 13, but I think 14, I got my hands on the best of Jim Cornette and the Midnight Express, the early years, which was a three (laughs) VHS set that Jim Cornette put out. And it had much of the 84 run of the Midnight Express and Jim Cornette in Mid-South. And I was just like, wow, because it was all perfect. The wrestlers were perfect. The wrestling was perfect. The promos were great. The commentating was great. It was just perfect wrestling. And it really stood out to me whenever I would see anything else from that time period. Mid-South stood out to me as being the best. Yeah, and that that year, I mean, that time frame, it was on fire. Everybody down there was watching it. I mean, I've told you this before on the 605. that, That was... It was our professional team as well. I mean, we had the Saints, but you know they didn't have a winning season until '87. So we, when it came to Mid South Wrestling, that was like our pro sports team. I mean, we, we've talked about that over and over again, and that was a special time. I mean, we're we're going to start in '81 at the end of end of '81, but '84, '83, '84, '85. Uh, that's probably my and uh, you know I don't want to spoil things. Obviously, we'll get there, but that's probably my favorite years uh, as we get into this uh, it's hard for it's kind of like having a kid it's like which one's your favorite you know I, I don't know if i could name one but i can tell you this much those were some fun years of mid-south right there and it's one of the things that really stuck out to me when going back and watching these episodes from the end of 81 which i hadn't seen in a long time and that was how in many ways it looks similar to 84 but in so many ways it's completely different in terms of the crowd reactions, in terms of the pacing of the show, in terms of the commentary on the show. So in so many ways, the next year, year and a half of shows that we're going to be talking about are going to be leading into the most successful year of Mid-South Wrestling. Not that all this stuff isn't great, but it really blows up by 84. You see the, I think what you're talking about is you definitely see an evolution from that late 81 as you move forward, you see things evolve. And I, to me, as I went back and watched it, because it's been over 35 years since I've seen this stuff. So going back and watching it, it just, I just in awe and not in awe because what we're going to talk about is a five-star match. You know, not that you have five-star matches every freaking week, but it's just, damn, I haven't seen these in 40 in 35 years. I look back and I'm just amazed at, you know, you think you, you mentioned it, Ted DiBiase, you, you knew him as the million dollar man. By the time he had gone to the WWF, man, I had been watching him for six, seven years already. And as, as Ted DiBiase, not the million dollar man. So you, to see that, him even grow, you know, because we start off and he's not a heel yet in 81. He's he's a baby face. And and to see him go from that to where he went to, I don't want to small things, like I said, but it's just it's a fun watch. It's a fun rewatch for me. 
there, there's a large time gap again, 35 years since I've seen it. And I'm really looking forward to it. So let's do it, man. Let's get it going. Let's get it going. We're going to start with an episode which aired mostly on December 5th, 1981. And I say that Mike, because as you know, different shows aired on different dates in different towns. So when I say yes. December 5th, 81, that's the date this aired. It's a Saturday, but in some towns it aired a week later. And of course, it's hard to actually firm up a date for these shows because they aired all over the place at different times. Yeah. And the other thing too, is I've heard this from people that were like in the territory sometimes, although you mentioned December 5th, 81, some people may have gotten that uh, a week after the fact, or yeah. it, it's, it's, it's really strange. So like you said, you, you hit the nail on the head for most people, December 5th, 1981. I'm almost certain this is what aired on Channel 26 in New Orleans on December 5th of 1981. I'm pretty accurate. I think when, when, when I guess we got the tape, when I say we in New Orleans, I, I think it was pretty on uh, these dates that you, you'll end up seeing on the network as we go through it. But that's just I, I'm pretty sure I could be wrong, but I'm pretty sure. Well, one thing we have to say here that's very important, I think, is one of the great things that you and I have both been excited about with this show is the ability for the people at home listening to play along. You can watch it on the WWE Network, develop your own thoughts, revisit old memories, or maybe hear what we're saying and look at something with a different perspective or laugh at something that's pointed out to you. The difference is with this first episode, the one from December 5th, 81, it is not on the WWE Network. So in many ways, we're going to be talking about things that some of you may not have access to, but hopefully we do it in a fun way so that it doesn't really hurt your ability to enjoy this program. And again, starting next week with next week's show, you'll be able to follow along every week on the WWE Network. Yep. Well, Mike, this show is hosted by Boyd Pierce, who hosted every week <laughs> in a, uh, you know, he's the only man I've seen wear things that I've seen in my grandmother's closet. And he's joined by Bob Roop. And uh, I get a kick out of Bob Roop whenever he did commentary mitts out. First of all, he's actually pretty good. And yeah. the other thing is, if you look at Bob Roop, Specifically, look at him sitting at the desk with Boyd Pierce. I don't know why this always happens whenever I've seen this clip or other clips of him at the desk. He looks like Sam Kinison is the professor in Back to School. <laughs> and he kind of sounds like him. Other than the screaming, they have a very similar sounding voice. And he looks just like Kinison as the professor as he sits there with his collared shirt and his blazer. I keep thinking it looks like Sam Kinison. <laughs> I can see it a little bit. You're right. Minus the screaming. Minus the screaming. <laughs> and oh, boy. they're sitting in front of the cheapest backdrop of all time. You know, we, we later got used to the one where it's the blue wall with the red print that says Mid-South Wrestling, and then they changed out to the black and white. This is yes. a blue wall with just a map of Louisiana and Mississippi. That's right. That's, that's what I remember with Boyd <laughs> Pierce and his world famous suits in the backdrop is uh, Louisiana, Mississippi. But it changes rather quickly. It's not from this point. It's not going to be that for long. I can tell you that much. Well, of course, it's not too long after this where Bill Watts does get a hold of Oklahoma. At this point, he's only running the south end of what would have been the bigger territory, Louisiana, Mississippi, Arkansas. I'm sure I'm forgetting somewhere else too, but he, yeah, ran, yeah. he he was running all those towns and eventually Mid-South does become a much bigger territory. I must ask you as a kid, what was your impression of Boyd Pierce? 
Uh, he was like um, your grandfather, I guess, is the best way to explain him. He's out there, and he's, all right, everybody, welcome to Mid-South Wrestling. And I, it's just uh, not that my grandfather spoke like that, but and not that my grandfather dressed like that. But to me, as a six-year-old watching Boyd Pierce, you know, he looked like an old dude, and he looked like my grandfather. So I, uh, that was my, I guess, first impression of him. And I'm sure we'll get into this a little bit more down the line when we get into the other uh, personalities on Mid-South Wrestling, such as Reese Bowden and yes. and whatnot. So, but uh, Boyd, uh, Boyd always, you know, first impressions, colorful suits, uh, always was, uh, it's going to sound crazy, but he really was the life of the party on Mid-South for a long time. I know that sounds crazy in today's environment where things are a lot more lively, but I say that because, you know, you got to remember, you don't have Jim Ross yet at this point. So Boyd, you'll hear it in some of the audio that I think we're going to play. Boyd had times where he'd get pretty darn excited on a microphone during these matches. And so he had a lot of life to him, as as I say that he was an he was still a, an old man that reminded me of his of my grandfather. But he he did get excited quite often. He certainly did. And again, he starts the show this week with Bob Roop. Bob Roop is a heel, although you wouldn't necessarily know that if you listened. He he seems a little rough around the edges, but he actually calls it pretty fairly in the ring for the most part. He does. He does. And another thing you got to remember too. I don't know if this had a bearing on it as I'm looking back at it. I I always I'm going to ask the listeners out there to do this as you're rewatching this or, or watching it for the first time with us. Realize also that this is 1981 and this is still the early 80s of wrestling. Um, and I, I'll I'll speak more on that as we get into this. But I think that when, just have that perspective and not a even a perspective of five years after this or even 10 years after this, because there were a lot of changes, obviously, in that time period in a pro wrestling uh, field and pro wrestling world. So but I, I agree. He he does kind of call it down the middle. I mean, he he's a heel, but we'll get into it. He's just calling it straight for the most part. Well, the first thing we see here is Boyd and Roop pitch to a video from a few weeks earlier of Bob Roop defeating Buddy Landell, a young Buddy Landell, still a brunette, not as muscular as he would be in 84. And what do you think of it? What are your thoughts of this match? All right. So, uh, again, uh, I want to state this. I don't remember everything specifically, obviously, but they go to this match. And one of the first things as I'm rewatching it, not as a six year old, but now. Buddy Landell is only four months past his 20th birthday right here. So just I just that was the first thing that hit me when I was watching it. I kind of looked it up. And then my thoughts on this match was uh, at, you know, it was a classic, I guess, early 80s match on TV for the most part. But Bob Roop sends Buddy in and gives him a big knee and then delivers a wicked shoulder breaker. He ends up getting a victory. And I point that out because to me. I don't know. That just feels like this is your typical, I guess, you know, almost a regular Mid-South match during this time period. Uh, you can see Bob was uh, laying it in, so to say. But that knee was pretty – it was a pretty big knee for its time frame, 1981. Uh, and that's kind of my thoughts there. Buddy being 20 and, and uh, you know, Bob Roop gets the victory. What do you think, Brian? There's an interesting history between Bob Roop and Buddy Landell. Buddy Landell's from Knoxville. And, mm-hmm. of course, Bob Roop was the booker for Ron Fuller Southeastern Wrestling, and then he defected, took a lot of the other talent with him, and they started up competition, and then eventually folded into Randy Poffo, Angelo Poffo, I should say, his ICW, and became partners in that company. So this is Roop right here on Mid-South Wrestling, just a few months after 
he stopped being that outlaw and actually went back into the mainstream wrestling world that was Mid-South. Mid-South wasn't necessarily an NWA promotion, but because of Bill Watts and his relationship with all the other promoters, people like Eddie Graham, and he owned 10% of Georgia still at this time, he was considered, even though he wasn't an NWA member, he was considered part of that world. So here's Roop back in the mainstream wrestling fold, which he had spent most of his career. He was the golden boy of Eddie Graham for a very long time. And he's in Knoxville in 79. Buddy Landell... I believe was actually living in his apartment for a little while because Buddy Landau was trained to be a wrestler by the great Malenko, who was part of Bob Roop's group that left Southeastern and went to form all-star. And then eventually that went into ICW. And actually there are some shows that took place in Florida called Sunbelt wrestling. It was an outlaw group with the great Malenko, Don Curtis, Louis Tillette. And then they had various talent in there like Thunderbolt Patterson, I believe uh, of course, they had Austin Idol, they had Jimmy Valiant, and Buddy Landell wrestled there as Buddy Roop. He actually took the name Roop when he wrestled there. So here we are now, a couple of years later, and it's Landell against Roop, former roommates in Knoxville. And like you said, it's a pretty typical match from this period of time. A young guy gets a few good moments, but Roop pretty much destroys him. I must say, Bob yep. Roop, you know, I don't know what you could have done, but... To me, that red, white, and blue singlet, it's not about the color. It's about the actual singlet <laughs> itself, is not very flattering. It's just no, such a weird – it makes him look like an egg or, or you know, just something oval, just some kind of oval-shaped guy in a ring, like a potato, I guess would be another way to look at it. It's just there had to be a better way and a better singlet than this to present Bob Roop. Yeah, for the record, I hate that style of singlet. That's it's it doesn't look good on hardly anyone. To me, I never liked that style of singlet. I mean, I guess maybe um, you know I, Ivan wore that and Nikita did as well. Like uh, without the without the the legs. Uh, I bet, but it wasn't them, loo- maybe it, it wasn't loose fitting though. His is like loose. That's fitting. true too. <laughs> Yeah, I, I it's it's you know it, yeah it's I, again it's eighty one I don't know but it's it's not something uh it's definitely not visually appealing I think you hit the you hit it right when you said uh kind of just looks like a potato <laughs> <laughs> yeah I would go with that one man <laughs> no because you know uh, the, yeah. the history between him and Buddy is interesting because during the match if you didn't know that unless there's some other story I don't know. It almost appears at a time he gets at one point he could have him done and he gets like real close to uh, Roop's on like one knee and he says something to Buddy and then he just continues Uh to kill him and he gets him with the shoulder breaker and Buddy takes a pretty good bump and and Roop's victorious. I want to note that the referee here, as we'll be saying many times, was Jerry Usher, another man with a very ill-fitting shirt, it appeared. Very baggy. (laughs) His referee shirt was very baggy. (laughs) It's like, uh, what are you going, parachuting, buddy? I mean, what's going on here, man? Uh, It was. It was very baggy. It's like he had a reverse, uh, you know, back in the day, MC Hammer had the parachute pants. It's like his shirt was a parachute shirt. In a parachute shirt. Yeah, yeah, I mean, it was very, I agree, very, very loose fitting. Strange look to it, but uh, yeah, good stuff. So again, this this match was from a few weeks earlier than this actual show and from this taping. And then after it, I have this audio I wanted to play, Mike, of Boyd and Bob Roop at the desk right out of this video. Boyd, we've all heard that history never repeats itself, but through the magic of videotape, we got a chance to see that. 
and the result was just the same. Another smashing victory for Bob Roop. Thank you, Bob. And we'll be back with live action in the ring after this word from Mid-South Wrestling Television Network. I just love the idea that here's the heel saying, there you go, there you see me. And Boyd Pierce goes, thank you very much. <laughs> thank you, Bob Roop. <laughs> we'll just move on to the next thing. <laughs> There's a couple of transitions. I can't remember this episode or the next one where we kind of have something like that going on. Actually, there's one in the next one that's 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 magical. I'll just leave it at that. Uh, but yeah, I agree. Uh, I love Boyd. I love Boyd Pierce, man. <laughs> Boyd, Boyd, Boyd is awesome. He's so awesome. Well, why don't, oh, you, why man. don't you go into the next segment on this show? Yeah, so next matchup, we got Paul Orndorff versus Tony Charles. And, you know, I will freely admit here that I'm sure Brian's got a lot more background information on some of the people uh, in this promotion, even though I did grow up watching it. Just from a historical perspective, though, like guys like Tony Charles, I don't know a lot about him. I, I know, I mean, I know he was around, but like, knowledge wise i'm obviously i'm i don't have as much as you now i did want to point this out before i throw it to you so i always i'm always fascinated whenever i'm doing old shows and looking at some old things so paul orndorff here is 32 years old which uh for me was uh i don't know it's just really really weird um just to think you know orndorff is already in 81 32 um orndorff also has a one thousand dollar hit on anyone who will take out Ted DiBiase right now. And lastly, Brian, uh, before I throw it to you, Orndorff wins with just a simple suplex. Uh, just different day and a different time, and you'll hear me say that probably a lot. What did you think, man? Well, again, he has the issue with DiBiase. DiBiase defeated him for the North American title in, I believe, November. So DiBiase had just defeated Orndorff, took the title off him, and it's a good match. In terms of Tony Charles, he's from England, of course. And the one thing I always think about with Tony Charles is he was in Memphis and he had a match with Billy Robinson. I encourage everyone to go check this out. It's on YouTube. I recently saw it uh, for the first time in years and it held up even better than I remember. And I first saw that match in 95, I believe. And I saw it around the same time that Eddie Guerrero and Dean Malenko were having their series of matches in ECW, which... Everyone was raving about. I mean, people went crazy about it. Quite frankly, I think maybe a little too crazy. But there is a bunch of spots they do. I don't even know if I should call them spots, but it's basically kick out, kick out. You know, it's just one pin after another, one pin attempt after another. And Tony Charles and Billy Robinson do it, these two guys from England. And they do it so much better and so much smoother than Eddie and Dean. And the overall match is just really good, really intense. You believe in them. I believe Tony Charles at one point was a part of Robert Fuller's crew who went with him from Knoxville to Memphis and then back uh, and then back again. And a uh, really good worker, really good underrated worker. You know, he looks a little bit older than everyone else. Here's a little smaller than everyone else, but Tony Charles could work. Yeah, I, I like I said, I don't know a lot about him. I mean, I know he's uh, I know he was well seasoned, made his way through the territories. And uh, another thing, too, man, I, I'm always fascinated at looking at how old these guys are now and maybe what they're doing now. Didn't realize until I watched this and, and did a little research that apparently he passed away February of 2015 at 79. So um, I don't know. It's always kind of sad to me whenever you think about guys that you grew up watching and, and how many of them are no longer here. And I hate to be hate to be down right there, but it's just uh, one of those things. So. Interesting stuff. I did not know that about um him being with Fuller's group. I had no idea about oh, that. Oh, yeah. And, and then with Orndorff, it's amazing to look at this and think in two years, he's Mr. Wonderful. Here, he's amazing. just Paul Orndorff with the P.O. on 
the back of his tights, and at times OP in opposite order, which I never <laughs> exactly got a good explanation as to why. But here he is, and he looks a little bit different than when he's wonderful. He's not as big. And knowing what we know now about weight training, there's a chance he's not on steroids here because he's yeah, not, I, he's yeah. not as big, but he's, he's pretty well defined, but it's not egregiously a neon sign for steroids. Yeah. He's definitely not what you saw a few years later. Right. Agree. And, you know, plus he was still not shaving his torso, you know, so he still has hair I was all over him. <laughs> I, was, I was wondering if you're going to say that because that is also the glaring, uh, that's glaringly obvious there. He's, he's, uh, I don't know. I guess he's, uh, yeah, he's well not shaved, so to say. It appears that maybe there was some sort of issue during the match, too, because there was a spot where Tony Charles takes a bump to the floor, and then he gets in the ring, and it's almost as if he's going for the same spot a second time, and there's a little bit of a problem where Orndorff just lays down, and Charles doesn't know what exactly to do for a split second. But then they go, and they do the spot again, like five seconds later. So you get to see the same spot twice, and maybe a third attempt, where it, it didn't work out, where he goes flying to the floor. <laughs> Territory wrestling, Brian. <laughs> <laughs> you know, another thing uh, during this match, it's the first time we hear about the dream match that Boyd Pierce is talking about, where listeners could send in their dream match to, as it says on the screen during the match, your local station. Just send it to your TV station. Just a random letter. Dear Channel 6. <laughs> I want to see this match. And they're saying, like, Andre the Giant will be in town. Dusty Rhodes will be in town. But they don't exactly explain how this works, because if people are just picking any match they want and sending them in, how do you really get a dream match out of that? Because there's so many potential options. And, of course, in a few weeks, we'll find out what match won. And I think people will say, wait a minute, there's no way that enough people voted for this match, because it's so random that it took place. Yeah. Of course, of course. But, you know, you had to give the illusion that you were actually uh, actually playing an active part in actually picking the dream match. Yes. <laughs> yes. And I got to oh, say, boy. too, you know, we're going to talk a lot about the crowd makeup on uh, this show and in future shows. But the crowd was very intently watching these two go back and forth. It's a really good back and forth match between Orndorff and Tony Charles. It's not like a four star match or anything, but for what it is. And the time frame it takes place, it's actually great. I actually really enjoyed it. I think, and, and that's my point about Mid South that I, I want the perspective for everyone to have is I think a lot of times I really do believe that's the prevailing thought as you watch Mid South during this time period. I think you know you'll again it's you're not going to sit there and go oh that's five star match, but at the end of the day you go oh, okay it's a good match and I enjoyed it and I think you told me one time you know Mid South just get these guys in there and they just beating the crap out of each other they're laying it in and they're making it look like a real sport and a real fight that's how i think of mid-south especially with the next match we have coming up uh we're gonna talk about it in a second yeah and you know that was what bill watts liked and that was what bill watts insisted on if you weren't gonna yeah. work that style you weren't gonna last in mid-south yeah you were you're gonna have a cup of coffee and then be on your way if you didn't do that well you brought up our next match the next match we saw here was the north american champion ted dibiase against Ed Wiskowski, the Polish prince. This, um, so I gotta, I gotta say, um, you want to tell the people who don't know who Ed Wiskowski actually is? Ed, <laughs> think, Wisk uh... Ed Wiskowski <laughs> was uh, later someone who gained great notoriety as Colonel De Beers, the South <laughs> right. African hey. racist uh, wrestling for the AWA. Um, doesn't have to have something to do with Tally Ho? 
<laughs> no, it has nothing to do with Tally Ho. What am I missing? Oh, wait, what about, like, where'd you get Tally Ho from? Lord James Bleers. Oh, Jesus Christ. You thought I got it from Colonel De Beers? <laughs> you confused, <laughs> hold on, you confused Lord James Bleers with Colonel De Beers? Oh my God, I thought I thought a long time ago that's where you got it from. I thought he said that. I was like, where? <laughs> they, they, see that now? I'm showing my uh, lack of knowledge of uh, the AWA uh, there. So uh, there you go. I'll get hammered on Twitter and everywhere else. I did that on purpose. No, I didn't. So um, the Polish prince, Ed Wyskowski versus the North American champion, Ted DiBiase. Uh, DiBiase, again, I'm always, in, I'm always fascinated by this. 27 years old right here. And you know how a second ago we talked about this, this territory, guys laying into each other? Uh, I want to ask you this. You think these guys were laying into each other? Yeah, a little bit. <laughs> a little bit. Of, uh, my note was plenty of hard-hitting shoulder tackles in this match. And, I, I mean, they, they, were, they were just getting it on. It's nothing fancy. Two guys, two bulls in there, hard-hitting, just how I like wrestling. Uh, I mean, I don't know how many people talk about how back then, like DiBiase being someone who, who was like this great, I guess, seller in professional wrestling. You know, I, I'm not talking like Ricky Morton type level, but man, DiBiase is selling his tail off. I mean, he's these guys are in there getting it on, man. They're just they're hitting each other hard and they're laying it in, and just a good, solid match between these uh, these two. I don't know your thoughts on it. Well, I must admit, this match, I liked all the mat work for one reason, and it's one of the reasons I love these old Mid-South wrestling shows. It gives you a good peek. It, it gives you a good view of the makeup of the crowd there. And it's so fascinating, the crowd that attends these tapings at the Irish McNeil Boys Club. Because you would almost think that a group of people shows up at the door, and then they split them up and make them sit in different places. Because you'll see next to each other, like an old man in a cowboy hat, a little kid who clearly has no relation to him, an old woman, and then, I mean, there was one taping where there's two little girls, and then next to them is an African-American in a cowboy hat, and then next to him is like an old lady with glasses. It looks like no one knows each other, and they're all just <laughs> sitting amongst each other and enjoying this show. There's an old dude who sits in, like, the front row, and he is, you'll catch him smoking from time to time. It's so 1981. <laughs> There's a lot of old people. I mean, that's one of the things that stands oh, yeah. out. It, it's a pretty diverse yeah. crowd in terms of race, but there is a, you can't even ignore it. There's a huge crowd of old people that sit down front. They're usually in the first couple yes. of rows. And, you know, again, it's during this match, actually, you see that guy with the cowboy hat smoking the cigarette. Yeah. It's just hanging out of his mouth. That's <laughs> just so 80s wrestling right there for you. I don't know how else to say it, but smoke filled arena. Yeah, there's, you're right. Very diverse crowd in Shreveport. You think this is 1981, man. So, and you're right. It's pretty random where people are sitting next to each yeah. other. You got an African American guy with the, I remember him with the cowboy hat. Yeah, it's just really random stuff. Like you look at every single row of people there. And I'm doing it right now, so I'm not just talking out of my ass. If you look at every single row of people there, there's no two people next to each other that look like they belong next to the third person. <laughs> every like other person just looks like they were randomly put in a specific spot. <laughs> it's really, really like, interesting. It's, it's just kind of, it is. It's strange. It's a different, I don't know how else to explain it. Like you said, it's interesting. The referee for this hard-hitting match, Mike, is Alfred Neely. Alfred Neely. Wow. I didn't pay attention. I'm glad you brought that to my attention. Yeah, so so far we've seen Jerry Usher, 
and we've seen Alfred Neely. So we know by this point that there isn't a problem with the shirts from the manufacturer being baggy, that it's just the way yeah. Jerry Usher's wearing it. Yeah, Jerry Usher just likes his parachute shirt, and he's, he's maybe he thinks he's going to fall out the ring so he can you know glide to the floor or something. Who knows? I don't know how much Colonel De Beers you've seen or how much Ed Wiskowski in Portland you've seen. <laughs> I've seen a good amount of it, but when watching this, and DiBiase's a big guy, it really stuck out just how big Wiskowski was. Yeah, he's a big, thick dude, wide-shouldered, I, I guess is the best way to explain it. I haven't seen – I haven't – I'll be honest, Portland, hardly any. I mean, I just haven't seen much of it, but it, it, he's a big dude. He's, 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 I mean, not only tall, he's just wide. He's thick, but he's wide. You look at his shoulders, man. He looks like he's, he looks like he's six feet across. I mean, I know that's, I mean, it's impossible. He's not that wide, but it, it kind of looks like it a little, man. He's a big guy. And, you know, I, I like the matchup that, you know, Watts threw these two in there against each other. And they, think about that. You got your territory champion. He's in your third match on the card. Yeah. And right smack dab in the middle of the show, right? I just I think you and I kind of talked about that offline at one point, how you know the the pacing of some of the early mid south from from eighty one was as far as the matches go. We'll get into that later, but interesting interesting like uh, I guess placement if you think about it nowadays. Well, there's definitely a different feel overall to the show, and a lot of it's attributed to Bill Watts not being on commentary. It just has a different pace and a different feel. Yeah. And, and this isn't to take anything away from Boyd Pierce or even Bob Roop, but there isn't that sense of urgency. With Watts, there's always an agenda and a message that's being pushed forward. And it's an overall overarching one. And with this, it's kind of just calling match by match what's happening. And there isn't that feeling like something really big is happening. It's just really good wrestling. But there's not like, oh, there's some kind of major thing happening in the territory they have to talk about all the time. There isn't that feeling here. Um, I do want to say one more thing I noticed. Usually you see spots of blood on a wrestling mat. In this match, on this show, there's just a giant couple of swabs of green on the mat. I don't know if Kabuki was in town or what, but there's just unspoken green spots that are pretty noticeable (laughs) on the mat. A pro, I, I would have to look at the history. Um, I don't know, but he may have been. I mean, we know Kabuki did come in, so that's that's quite possible. There, there will come a time where uh, there <laughs> there is plenty of blood weekly on Mid South TV. I just don't want to say when, but there is there's going to be there's going to come a time where you will see that. But yeah, that that's possible. That's Kabuki's green there. God, that used to drive me nuts. I don't want to get off topic, but. Man, all that green all over. Oh, Jesus. I was like, God, I wouldn't want to be those guys wrestling him. Oh, uh, I, I don't think we actually gave the result. DiBiase defeated Wiskowski with a crossover roll through. I guess that's the best way to call it. Ed Wiskowski does a cross body and uh, DiBiase just rolls it through for the reversal. Notice also, uh, it's exactly what he did. Off the second rope, because coming off the top was illegal in Mid-South back then. That's right. That's right. So, so just keep that in mind. I mean, you, you'll never it's, – it's something to keep in mind whenever you see somebody do it because that's a big deal if they do it and the ref's back is turned because what they just did was cheap. So uh, just keep that in mind. Uh, it's something to remember about Mid-South related to the second and third rope. Of course, this match is a non-title match for the North American Championship, which Ted DiBiase holds. He defeated Paul Orndorff a few weeks earlier. But the next match is for another title. At this point, there were so many titles in Mid-South. The next match, Mike, is for the Mississippi title. Yeah, it's Bob Orton Jr. versus Jim Garvin. And 
Yes, that, that Jim Garvin um, for the Mississippi heavyweight title. I, um, you know, Brian, this is early, early on Mid-South, and I'm, I got to be honest, I didn't follow much of the lineage of like the Louisiana and the Mississippi titles. And it was really weird what they did do with those titles back then, because there's times when like JYD is the Louisiana champ. And at the same time, he's a tag champ and he's tagging, but he comes to the match without the Louisiana title on. He's got the, the tag title on, or sometimes he would have a, it's just, it was just a really weird dynamic what they would do with the Mississippi and Louisiana title. I mean, they would, they'd eventually phase them out, but very strange. Um, you talked about non, did you say this one was non-title or the previous one? I can't remember. The previous one. Okay. I can't remember. I was trying to, rem- I don't have it in my note. I was trying to remember if they said it about the Mississippi title. Cause one thing I was going to say was a lot of times I didn't realize as much back then they did more non-title back then than I thought they did. I think this one's for the title, but I just wanted to point that out. So I don't know. One of the things I wanted to mention during this though, in the matches during the commentary Roop starts like planting the seeds of how he knows how to get out of DiBiase's figure four leg lock. And I just kind of wanted to point that out there because that ends up being a, a big deal. Um, also, Boyd Pierce says something during the match that's important when he says, matchmaker Grizzly Smith books title matches here unlike in many places. Uh, I guess that would be like for you, someone who grew up you know, watching WWF, um, how many title matches did they give away on like free TV? Title matches? Um, you know, when I was growing up or this era, I mean, it's kind of the same answer in a lot of ways. You never got oh, okay. a, you never got a world title match on TV. Not counting right. the MSG shows that would air on TV, but the actual television shows, you never got a world title match. You would get tag title matches because a lot of the tag title changes happened on TV, and the okay. Intercontinental title those were usually done in the arenas too. So in the WWWF or WWF territory, tag title changes you'd see on TV. The other title changes, not so much. See the and I wanted to ask that specifically to you because no title is off limits on Mid South Television. I mean, there and uh, I know the North American title is not technically a world title. My point is there is not one belt in this federation that will ever be off limits as far as TV goes. And and Boyd is when he makes that statement, don't just gloss over it when he says that because they do. I mean, there's a lot of title matches given away on free TV and. You know, not everybody was doing that at that time. So I, I wanted to make that uh, point. Uh, the other thing I had, two nice moves during this match as Orton retains the title. One was the belly-to-back suplex as Garvin climbed the ropes, and then Orton spikes Garvin with a pile driver for the victory. I'll throw it to you, Brian. Get your thoughts on uh, anything you heard on the commentary, anything I would have missed there. Orton also hit a pretty sick drop kick during this match that stood out. It's, it's weird when, you know, considering today with all the high spots, it's still, like, is great to me when i see an amazing drop kick when i see like a really good drop kick i stop and appreciate that and orton does that here another thing is jimmy garvin's appearance is notable now this is approximately <laughs> a year before he becomes gorgeous jimmy garvin he's already got mm-hmm. the hair he already looks like the guitar player from toto on steroids but the <laughs> one thing that stands out is his shoulders he almost yeah. has the rick steiner 1986 shoulders where he's just jacked and he's got um, them nice caps He's got those, you know what I mean? He's got nice caps on his shoulders, I guess is the way I, I'd, I'd explain it. Nice caps on his shoulders. Yeah, like, like he, like I mean, I mean, they're nice and rounded, so to say. It's like a nice little round cap, so to say. You've never heard? I know you've, I know you've been in like the bodybuilding game before. I, that was how it was always explained to me. 
got those nice caps, man. <laughs> I, I'm not too familiar no. with caps, okay. but what do I know? Uh, I, I guess it's interesting <laughs> also to note here, this is for the Mississippi title. And I think because it's Jimmy Garvin before he was gorgeous Jimmy and he loses the match, it's easy for someone to see this for the first time. I think Jimmy was an undercard guy. Jimmy had actually been the Louisiana state champion earlier in the year. And he had lost it to the Super Destroyer months earlier. Of course, at the time of this show airing, the Louisiana champion, I believe, was the Great Kabuki, although that would change, which you'll be hearing about on a future episode here. So Jimmy Garvin had been one of the state title holders just a few months earlier. And he had been, Jimmy had been, he had been wrestling for a while at that point, hadn't he? He had been around the business for a long time. Remember, he was originally the. You know, I don't know if a manager or male valet is the, the more appropriate term, but for the Garvin brothers tag team of Ron hey, Garvin, okay. who's actually a stepfather, and Terry right. Garvin, who's actually of no yep. blood relation. And then eventually he started wrestling, and here he is again. This is him more muscular right before he turned into Gorgeous Jimmy, a year before he becomes Gorgeous Jimmy Garvin, which really made his career. Yeah, he he definitely had a good build there, and you're right. One of Wow. You look at him right here versus when he became gorgeous, Jimmy Garvin. Just uh, <laughs> you look at him here and you go, man, this guy, this guy ends up being uh, involved with some major stuff in world class. And then obviously he ends up in the uh, NWA and WCW doing the Saturday night shows. Just ah, it gives a show you, man. You watch people grow in the evolution of, uh, I, I guess you call it character or, you know, becoming gorgeous Jimmy Garvin. Good stuff, though. Yeah, And Orton, very similar to Roop is here fresh off working for ICW and being a 10% partner in the office of ICW for a couple of years after they left Southeastern in 1979. He was there with Randy Savage and Ron Garvin and Lanny Poffo and Roop and that entire crew for two years. And this is him and Bob Roop together being welcomed back into the mainstream wrestling fold. They stopped working for an outlaw company and mm -hmm. here he is. And, and you know, within a couple of years, Orton is in main events in mid Atlantic wrestling. And then of course, not too long after that, he's a part of the world wrestling federation where he becomes Roddy Piper's bodyguard. But this right here, 81, this is where he made the switch and got back into the NWA or back into the mainstream wrestling fold. I always say that with mid South, like a lot of people, I, I talk to younger fans that don't have recollection of this time period and they'll start talking about Ted DiBiase and the Bob Ortons of the world and all these people who ended up being mega stars in the WWF. And I'm like, you should have seen them before they were there. I mean, they were names before they got to New York. And I know you're a New Yorker, Brian, so I don't mean that in a bad way. But yeah, it's like they, these guys had some great careers before ever getting to that point. Uh, and I know you wouldn't be, but I, it amazes me how many people, like newer fans, I should say, just don't uh, have that appreciation for it. That's a good point you made. How many years later was did Orton make the jump there? My, my time's always bad. Orton was working for Southeastern, and then the summer of 79, he, along with the rest of that group, quit started working for, actually formed All-Star Wrestling with Ron Wright, actually. And then when that went under, Orton and Roop and Ron Garvin went and worked for, worked with, I should say, probably, the Poffos and ICW. Right, but then, but then they came, so, and they're in Mid-South. What year does then Orton Jr. make the jump to WWF? 
Orton got his first run in the WWF maybe, you know, within a year of this. That's what I was trying to remember. Okay. Yeah, and, and he, you know, again, he was brought in there, and he got his first one as Cowboy Bob Orton. And then he was yeah. in Mid-Atlantic, and he was a part of that, really, the lead-up, the build-up to Starcade 83, where him and Slater, you know, yeah. were there. And, of course, he ended up turning on Flair to try to get Harley Race's bounty. And then, by 84, he's up there with Piper. So much happens in just that short time. There's so many guys on this show and in this company that within a few years would look nothing like they currently looked (laughs) and be nothing like the wrestlers they were here. And case in point, the next match on the show is the Junkyard Dog versus Terry Orndorff, the brother of Paul Orndorff. And here's the JYD, and it does stick out that the rest of the show (laughs) has happened and this show's been good and the fans have been into it. But when JYD comes out, he's the only guy in the entire company with music. And yeah, when another yeah. one bites the dust hits, the people react. It, it's it's totally different than the pop and the reaction every other wrestler, including DiBiase, who was popular, in that company gets. I mean, no one can touch the reaction the dog gets coming to the ring. I, I agree. Uh, would you like me to play it from his entrance on uh, through uh, him speaking on the mic? Yeah, let's hear this a little bit of this now. So again, this is the junkyard dog who also is jacked. He is ripped. <laughs> if you've only seen him in the WWF, look at him here. He is shredded. So here's the junkyard dog coming to the ring and a little bit of the pre-match words that have, <laughs> that are said over the microphone before his match with Terry Orndorff challenge match this event is for one fall or remaining television time and in this match terry orndorff has agreed that if he loses this battle then he will leave the mid-south area hold it hold it just a moment i thought you hated that mask don't get me wrong i hate this mask but this is the mask that i'll beat my george which right here and I feel lucky. I think I can beat the dog right here, too. Well, all right. At 224 pounds from Tampa, Florida, Terry Orndorff. So we don't know what And here to accept that challenge. Where you go with that jackdaw hood on? I've been around a long time. Why don't you check this, man? I ain't wrestling till you check him. He says he's wearing that hood because it's lucky for him. Let me check it. He says it's all right, and here to accept that challenge at 270 pounds from Tennessee, the junkyard dog. Bob Rupert is unable to hear from her. You said something at the beginning. I want to say something real quick. He is in great shape here. Dog, he looks phenomenal. And then, so I wanted to point that out, and then go ahead and tell me your thoughts on the audio that we heard. Well, you know, a few things. One is, I guess, a little bit of the backstory. Terry Orndorff wasn't Paul Orndorff. He was never presented as being as as tough 
or as bad as Paul Orndorff, a little more weaselly. So he started wearing this mask. And at times, it happened on TV a few weeks before this, he would go to the floor and Bob Orton Jr. would come out, sneak out, put on the mask, and then pretend to be Terry Orndorff to help out him and Paul. So that's one of the reasons why JYD is so worried about Terry Orndorff wearing this mask, and that would play into what would happen during the match. And he's saying check him because he's afraid that there'll be a loaded object put in the mask. And again, that plays into what we're going to hear here. Uh, we'll talk more about this on future episodes, but Reeser Bowden is <laughs> the most remarkable part of this show because... I don't think there's ever been a more fearless ring announcer. And I say that because he looks like a man without a care in the world. He's not worried about losing his job. He's not worried about a heel hitting him. He's not worried about being in the middle of action. There's nothing that can rattle. Reeser Bowden. I mean, look, you have to go through a lot growing up in life with that name. Reeser. Reeser Bowden. And, <laughs> and it's just, he's just not phased by anything. And he's, and I love him. There's something about him that I really love. And, you know, it goes into an overall philosophy that Bill Watts had. And it's in his book. And he picked it up from Eddie Graham, where Bill Watts didn't want any wrestlers putting down the announcer or the commentator because that's the credibility of the show. Everything crazy that happens in the world of wrestling happens within the context of the stability of the promotion and the show. Something wrestling's missing now where the promotions are chaotic with heel authority figures and the announcers are talking gibberish. But to Bill Watts, it was a big deal that the promotion and the people who were disseminating the promotion's propaganda or, you know, their agenda have credibility and the credibility is stable and that even if someone is a bad, bad heel, they don't do anything to rattle that. I I wish I could add something to it, but what you just said holds so true. And Reeser Bowden, for the most part, is you can't you you can't throw him off his game. That's for darn sure. He's not worried about no. it. He's it's hard to. I mean, you don't get the visual and the audio right there, but he's he ah, he he's doing his job and he's doing it well. He just stands there, and people yeah. could be next to him screaming, "I'm gonna kill you!" And he just. He has the, the same look on his face, just holding the microphone, bemused. All right, and that's all. And you know, and here now in this corner, from Tennessee, the junkyard dog. The junkyard dog was what? He, he was from Tennessee, and then they said he was from Charlotte, North Carolina, right? Those were his two hometowns? Uh, it got to the point, too, where I can remember they eventually would say he was from New Orleans and Mid-South. And, and we knew that wasn't the case, but I, I seem to recall at one point that was the case it, yeah that sounds right though so he went from tennessee to carolina so there's a lot going on in this match so it's the junkyard dog versus terry orndorf terry's wearing this yellow mask red tights and a yellow mask what did you think of what was going on with this match uh lots of shenanigans i guess is the best way to put it but the crowd is very much into it man they, they, it's it's uh, I will say, well, I don't want to give the, the results away before we play the audio of it, but there's definitely a lot going on, and I loved it. I don't know how else to say it without playing the audio first, if that makes sense. <laughs> what do you think? Yeah, let's play some audio, and then we'll talk about it on the other side. Say, Hondar coming over, and he's giving his brother something. Oh, he just gave him a word of advice, didn't he? Match, and there is no disqualification. So, Terry Arndorf 
Trump is loading up that mask. He loaded well, it up. I told you that Paul had well, to tear something and he's putting inside see that it. mask. I couldn't see it. Now look. And there he done it. The junkyard dog hit him. And you know there's something inside that mask with a head that the junkyard dog has proved time and time again. Well, I didn't see it. I didn't see it, boy. Now, Terry Orndorff gets up, comes back in the ring. That goes. You didn't say Terry Orndorff. He's going for the pile driver. That's Paul Martin Jr. Well, he's got the mask on. I can't really tell. It looks like... And the junkyard dog throws Terry Orndorff out of there over the top rope for the man in the mask. Throws him out. Right, George? And there, Alfred Neely disqualifies the junkyard dog. There he's making the motion while throwing him over the top rope, which is a disqualification. Well, the referee saw a man in a yellow mask over the top rope. Now, there it is. There's Terry Orndorff in the yellow mask. Oh, there it goes. Running away inside is Terry Orndorff. Now is the mask. The mask was switched, and he gives the match. Terry Orndorff, Alfred Neely, disqualifying the junkyard dog while throwing him over the top rope. I really couldn't see what happened, boy, but the man in the yellow mask got thrown over the top. The referee called it the way he saw it, a disqualification. The junkyard dog got beat again. He got beat by disqualification. We all saw what happened as I described it. Bob Roof didn't agree with me. We'll be back. Means they have time for another standby match. <laughs> so much happened right there. It's hard to, it's hard to explain. Uh, yeah, that was so. Uh, well, go ahead, Brian. I'll throw it to you. Well, let's break it down a little bit. So JYD is wrestling Terry Orndorff. Terry Orndorff's in this yellow mask. At a certain point, Paul Orndorff comes out to slip him something. Uh, and, and there is a funny line there, which you just played, where uh, Boy Pierce says, "Oh, he just gave him something," and Roop says, "I think he just gave him a word of advice," which is actually a really funny line. And now Terry Orndorff has this thing which he loads into the mask. And Mike George, babyface, seeing all this happening, runs out the ringside. The place is really into it. They're really popping. And Terry Orndorff sees Mike George on the apron, headbutts him. George goes down like he's shot. By this point, Orton has snuck out too. And the JYD, because his headbutts are impervious to pain, grabs Terry Orndorff and headbutts him. But the loaded object in the mask causes Orndorff to go down because of the power of JYD's headbutt. But JYD goes down because of the foreign object in the mask and JYD going down knocks referee Alfred Neely down who flies out of the ring. So it's just complete chaos. And by the way, we're going to keep a running tally as we do this week by week. This is the first of the many JYD timber falls we'll be seeing where he's hit. And it takes him like a delayed, you know, how Ric Flair would fall face first, like the face first yes. bump. JYD just had this timber as he slowly went down. Uh, so that's yes. the first time we see it here. And then eventually Orton runs in, they switch masks. He gets involved. They bring up that it's no disqualification because why wouldn't Terry Orndorff be disqualified when his brother is in the ring going back and forth with JYD slugging it out? Yet JYD is disqualified for throwing the masked Paul Orndorff over the top rope. Yeah, that was my uh, next note. I was going to say it's weird because there's no DQ, but we get a DQ on JYD because he threw him over the top rope. 
another thing that I don't know if you mentioned there was Bob Roop. His his whole demeanor, you know, for the most part, he was calling things straight, but he goes, ah, there was a lot going on there. I, I, I don't know. I really couldn't keep track of it all. It, knowing that he just saw the guy who was not actually originally in the match was the one who got thrown over the top rope and there was some interference. But so he just saw all that, but he but he acted like he didn't. Did you catch that? I did. Also important to note, I brought up that Terry Orndorff was wearing red tights. Bob Orton Jr. is wearing purple tights. So even purple, though they switched right. the mask, it was obvious it wasn't the same guy. Also, when they make the switch and Orton gets in the ring to pile drive JYD, there is a fan. They do the wide shot. Oh, yeah. So you can see Mike George on the floor and Terry Orndorff on the side and referee Alfred Neely on the other side struggling to get up. There is a fan who, when they have this wide shot, throws a soda. I don't know who he was trying to hit, but he missed everyone, and it landed on the other side of the ring and almost hit Mike George. Yeah, that dude needed to sign up for the Saints back then, man, because he he chunked a fully loaded Coca-Cola, about a 32-ounce by all estimates, all the way across from one end of the stands, lands all the way on the other opposite end of the ring, and you, you see it. It just splashed. Yeah, I, I caught that. I caught it was that. when Orton was going to pile drive the dog. Was he thinking this will stop him from pile driving the junkyard dog? This RC Cola will be what prevents Bob Orton Jr. from pile driving the junkyard dog. It's 1981. I wouldn't put it past him. You've got to see this bump Alfred Neely takes too off JYD, barely touching him <laughs> as he falls back. Alfred Neely took some. Took some nice bumps back in the day, if, if if my memory serves me correctly as we were going through these things. there, This is not the only time you'll see Alfred Neely uh, do something like that. He was uh, – I don't want to say he was known for that, but I, it just it, – memory serves me correctly. Alfred Neely was – he was a, he was a nice uh, rough bumper, I guess is the words I'm looking for. Mid-South always had good referees for the most part. You know, Randy P. Yeah. Anderson would be there in 84. Carl Fergie was a referee. Tommy Gilbert was a referee. They always had good referees. Yeah, they and they actually end up. There's um, uh, he you'll you'll see him wrestle in a in a few matches. But uh, what's his name? Uh, last name Ferrara. Uh, Rick Ferrara. Oh, Rick Ferrara. Up, he, yeah. He does, yeah. He does a lot of refereeing. I mean, you'll see him. You'll see him actually working matches soon. But he ends up doing a lot of refereeing. There's another one. Um, can't think of his name. Uh, oh shoot, <sighs> I can't. I can't think. Of it. He's a young guy, but uh, he he works some matches, some enhancement talent matches. He ends up doing some refereeing. But yeah, for the most part, the the refs in Mid South were solid. I mean, you didn't see. I don't. I don't remember like you seeing mistakes. I mean, they were they were pretty much on it. It would make sense. I mean, you know, Watts drove a hard bargain for not just his wrestlers. I would assume, right? His, his referees as well. I, I think every single person I was working for that company heard it from the big cowboy. And you know, yeah. as Jim said, the rings were afraid to fall down. I mean, you, know, you had to do what was right by the boss. And look, we could say a lot of things about Bill Watts. Bill Watts knew how to run a successful wrestling territory and produce what is arguably the best wrestling television show of the 80s. Yeah, it, real quick, you know, you're talking about uh, Watts driving a hard bargain and uh, making and it. And making sure his message was heard. So the the one time I had one man gang on booking a territory, gang was talking about Watts, and he goes, "Let me tell you something." He goes, "When Bill Watts told you to be at an arena, even if you died on the way there or died a day or two before, you better get somebody to get your body to the arena. That way you can be in the ring to take the one, two, three. <laughs> now 
Gang's a big guy. Gang was like, I was, I was scared of that man. I took him serious. I made sure I got there early. You know, he was telling me about, you know, all the time. He's like, I got there early. I never wanted to piss the, you know, cowboy Bill Watts off. So, um, and you know, that's that's a testament to him. I mean, yeah, he drove a hard bargain, but you know, like you said, it produced the best, uh, best eighties wrestling there was. Yeah, and we will speak more about the one man gang in the weeks ahead. Because he, much like Bob Roop and Bob Borton, had been wrestling in ICW, mostly in Kentucky and, of course, other towns competing against Jerry Jarrett. And he was Crusher Broomfield there, and that's how he would come into Mid-South Wrestling at the beginning of 1982. So in the weeks ahead, we'll be talking a little bit more about Crusher Broomfield, the one-man gang who comes into Mid-South Wrestling. But what's next on this show, Mike, is the Iron Sheik, managed by General Skandar Akbar, versus... King Cobra. Yeah, it's pretty darn interesting. Uh, we got we got some sound bites here for this one, but uh, this was I, I vaguely remember King Cobra. Uh, I think you had mentioned you were uh, trying to look up some information. I don't know if you were able to find much on him, but there's a point in this match where Bob Roop starts talking about the Iron Sheik's, you know, hooks on his boots, so to say, and uh, Brian, if you'd like to play it, I do have a timestamp for you where we we can kind of. You hear what he's got to say about these hooks, man. What do you think? Men exchanging punches. Cobra. He tries to drag him in the ring. Bob Rupin. He's hooked. Those hooks on the front of the shoes of the Iron Sheik. You know, those hooks, those points are used in the Arab world. Camel won't get up or when they want it to go faster. And you can kick them without pointing the toes. And I guess the Iron Sheik is more comfortable with him, but they were certainly effective there. And he has no point in professional wrestling. King Cobra's no camel. They're in the wrestling ring. Well, technically, they're they're, two count there, but they're not against the rule. They're not against the rules. They're not banned. And the Sheik doesn't do much kicking or anything. So I don't think in that case, they just hooked on the ropes, but they certainly, whether on purpose or inadvertently, they helped him. Now, again, the Cobra is embarrassed from the way he looked earlier in this match, apparently. He's punching. The Sheik stops him, runs over the top of him with a tackle, comes again. This time, he caught him with that boot. Caught him with the boot. The Cobra, King Cobra grabs his throat. Backwards, superplex. Beautiful move. Classic salto. The Sheik apparently not happy with that. Big elbow. Well, there it is, and that's what ends the match. And I got to say, and uh, we'll talk a little bit more about this in the next couple episodes, Mike, but for the limited time the Iron Sheik is in Mid-South, and it's a very short period of time, he's gone pretty quickly in 82. He hits a mean suplex like you'd never saw him hit anywhere else. I mean, he's just picking up guys, holding them for a second, and just dumping them on their heads. Yeah, he. Sh- I was going to say that actually had in my notes. He really shows, you know, I think I've always heard stories that he was a really strong guy. And you really, you really see that in his limited time in Mid-South. I mean, he's a strong man back then. I mean, obviously much younger than he is nowadays, but very strong. Uh, that that what Roop called a uh, salto, I mean, as we know probably now as a German, he, he just muscled him up and then he gets the pin on King Cobra. But Brian, I laughed my tail off when Boyd Pierce says, he ain't riding no camel in wrestling. And the rat, that's a wrestling ring. Uh, he's talking about the points. You could not convince me as a kid that the Iron Sheik did not have lead 
or metal in those points. I just knew <laughs> that there was something illegal going on back then when I was watching. I was like, how do they let him do that? But to the announcer's credit, I don't know if Roop said it. I know it was Roop said it. Roop said, well, it's not illegal, Boyd. So, you know, just something to think about as you listen to the commentary there. It's not brought up here and it's not shown here, but just like he did in so many other places, the Iron Sheik did have the Persian Club Challenge, which will play a part in a future angle that you'll hear about in the next couple of weeks here on the show. But that is something that they will revisit, something that you may remember from the WWF or from Georgia or anywhere else. They will show you the Persian Club Challenge in the weeks ahead. Yeah, very interesting stuff coming with that for sure. Well, with that, we have time for one final match, a uh, TV time remaining match. And what a match this is. <laughs> Jerry Novak, many of you may remember him as the Bounty Hunter, a, a original member of Jim Cornette's Dynasty of Champions in Chattanooga in 1983, teams with The Monk versus Frank Monty and Brian Blair. Um, there's no conclusion to this match. This is the last match of the show, and time runs out, and they just end the match, and they end the show. They end the show. They don't end the match as much as they end the show. Uh, it's interesting because if you're a fan of UWF and Mid-South, you may remember a few years later, they had some hot endings to shows where it, yes. was, it was breaking down in Tulsa, and they would just cut, yeah. and it would end with all the baby faces and all the heels killing each other in the ring. This is the exact opposite. The show ends in yeah. the middle of the standby match, and I doubt too many fans at home were heavily invested in this match between Jerry Novak and the Monk against Frank Monty and Brian Blair. Yeah, I don't know when. I don't have a good recollection of when this ended as far as when they stopped doing this at the end of the shows, but they did this from what I remember for a while and it, I, I, I don't like I said, I don't remember the exact year when it changed, but I do remember where a lot of times the shows would end just like this. And it would sometimes Boyd Pierce would like count it down. And what I mean is he would say, we got one more man of the TV time remaining. And then other times it kind of like he, he really didn't. But it's just funny how, you know, at the end of this one, he's like. He's like, all right, we're, we're running out of time now. Next week's card, uh, we got the popular little midget girls that'll be here. Uh, and then they, 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 they go off air. It's just no resolution, no nothing. We don't know what happens. I want to say when we come back next week, we, we don't even find out what happens then. But it's just we're out of time and we're gone. And to the point you made, it is definitely a far cry from it's breaking down. It's breaking down. We go off air every single week. With uh, with chaos, I guess is the best way to put it. Yeah, that is a good way of putting it. And this is how the show ends. We'll talk more about this in the next few episodes because this will definitely be a recurring theme. To say I'm underwhelmed by undercard Brian Blair in Mid-South is probably a, a vast understatement. And we get a lot of him in the next couple of weeks. And yes. it's just, I don't know. You know, I don't know who sold him on the idea of having a mustache. But... <laughs> I don't know. It makes it just doesn't make him look young enough. It makes him look older than he is. He looks awkward. Maybe I'm just over analyzing it. But to me, Brian Blair never really found his footing until the killer bees. And I know a lot of people are like, you've got to be kidding me. You know, what about what about his feud with Jesse Barr in Florida? To me, I honestly think the killer bees is the best thing that ever happened to Brian Blair. <laughs> and uh, yeah, like, yeah. I mean, my knowledge of him is not as vast as yours, but I would agree. I mean, I I would I remember him becoming a member of the killer bees and i you know i i remember going that's the same dude that 
worked in Mid-South with the mustache. I, I, I remember him. And then he's one of the killer bees. And I agree to me. He definitely was. Uh, I don't remember the Jesse Barr feud, but uh, the, the him with the killer bees was much better. <laughs> yes, absolutely. But there it is. The first episode we're reviewing here on this show, the Mid-South Wrestling Television Review Program. This is from December 5th, 1981. Uh, real quickly, before we go, Mike, I know one of the things you and I have talked about, especially when we made the announcement on the Super Podcast about doing this show, about beginning this endeavor, was that where we could, we would play local promos on this show. We would take that audio and play it. Unfortunately, we don't have too many local promos from this period of time in 1981. But one thing we can do today that we said we were going to do is talk a little bit about what else was happening in Mid-South. So just real quick, I want to say this aired December 5th. It was recorded, obviously, before that. But in terms of the results, on December 4th in Shreveport, Louisiana, Brian Blair defeated Rick Ferrara. Ed Wiskowski defeated King Cobra. The Iron Sheik beat Don Serrano. Ted DiBiase defeated Bob Roop. And in the main event, the Junkyard Dog and Mike George, who was a frequent tag team partner of his at the time, went to a double disqualification with Paul Orndorff and Bob Orton Jr. And then the next day, the day this originally aired, December 5th, 1981, in Alexandria, Louisiana. Uh, Mike, how far is Alexandria from New Orleans? Uh, Alexandria is uh, just say about just say about three hours. Okay, so here's the card from that day: Brian Blair defeated Jerry Novak, Frank Monty, and Barbie Doll defeated Rick Ferrara and Diamond Lil. We will speak about these midget female grapplers next week here on this show. Also on this card, Ernie Ladd defeated Jesse Barr. The Iron Sheik defeated King Cobra, just like we saw right here on this show. And in the main event. The Junkyard Dog, Ted DiBiase, and Mike George defeated Paul Orndorff, Bob Orton Jr., and Bob Roop. That sounds like a real hell of a main event. Good stuff, man. That's Mid-South, man. Lighting the territory on fire. Well, this is week one of the Mid-South Wrestling Television Review. Of course, we will be back next week, and we will be reviewing December 12th, 1981. You can follow along. You can watch it on the WWE Network. It is there. We'll be watching it with you and telling you our thoughts. Mike, before we go, let the listeners know how they can stay in touch with you and how they can find you and your fine podcasts. You can follow me on Twitter at Mike504Saints. Of course, I'm a Saints fan, being born and raised in New Orleans. Or at BTT underscore podcast. My 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 great friend, the great Brian Last, loves underscores. So I know he cringes every time I say that one. And then on Facebook, <laughs> Facebook.com slash Booking the Territory. But most of all, just search Booking the Territory wherever you get your podcast from. We got two shows a week. One on Thursdays, it's more of an NWA-focused show. And then the Sunday night shows, Smoky Mountain Wrestling Recaps, which are a lot of fun as we go week by week through the Smoky Mountains, which was, uh, or I should say, Smoky Mountain Wrestling, which was one of the, uh, I'll say, the most underrated promotion of all time, in my opinion. But uh, check us out. Give us a listen. Subscribe. Give us a couple five-star reviews if you can on iTunes. You can find us anywhere, iTunes, Podbean, Stitcher, but I hate Stitcher just like Brian does. Podcast Attic is the best way to go if you are an Android user, and we'd appreciate it. The uh, I, will, I, I do give this warning because I've toned down my language for this show. Sometimes our language is uh, a little strong there, but it's just how we talk. It's nothing meant to be uh, offensive to anyone, I should say. So, uh, And Brian, I've had a lot of fun. This is a good week one, man. This is uh, getting us rolling, so I'm looking forward to doing even more. 
I think we're going to have a lot of fun as we get going with this show, the Mid-South Wrestling Television Review. Of course, you can hear me each and every week on the 605 Super Podcast at 605pod.com, available through iTunes, Podcast Addict, Stitcher, and everywhere else if you enjoy wrestling humor and classic wrestling talk and interviews. Then check out the 605 Super Podcast. Once again, 605pod.com. You can follow me on Twitter at GreatBrianLast. And of course, you could join the Super Podcast online community by going to facebook.com slash superpodcast. This show is a production of the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network. Until next week, for Mike Mills, I'm the great Brian Last. Tally ho! Mm-hmm.